It's the same in any subject, right? You want someone to have a, a, mm. a positive relationship with reading. So that's why we talk about high interest reading materials and right. letting students read graphic novels and, and the joy of reading and not doing reading logs. Same thing with writing. We let students write on topics that are interesting to them, these personal mm. narratives and issues that they care about, that they're passionate about, because we want them to have this positive relationship with it. Yeah. The same is true with math. It's just a little bit more complex. Mathematics. That's the topic of our show today, which means a portion of you listening just got super excited and thought, co-sign me up. And if you think that's the last dad joke you'll hear this episode, buckle up, my friends. But a portion of you maybe just got uncomfortable with this topic. Maybe you thought, I don't teach math, so what's in it for me? Or maybe you thought, numbers and I don't get along. And both those responses are exactly why this topic is so critical, because we're not just talking about teaching math, we're talking about math identity. What is your relationship with mathematical thinking and processes, and how has that relationship influenced your life in and beyond school? And it's really even deeper than that. We're talking about how any identity forms around academics and schools, literacy, art, music, physical health, everything. We're going to pinpoint exactly how identity develops and the big and little ways that every educator can help students develop identities and academic relationships that propel their future. So grab your cocktail and your calculator. It's time for Educator Happy Hour. Educator Happy Hour is brought to you by Top Youth Speakers. Are you looking to inspire your students or staff to not only motivate their thinking, but their actions in school and beyond? Then check out Top Youth Speakers. Top Youth Speakers is a group of 33 carefully vetted speakers and professional development leaders whose messages are engaging, evidence-based, and life-changing. Browse speakers, check out customer reviews, and watch preview videos at topyouthspeakers.com. What is up, Happy Hour HodgePodge? I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who listened and left reviews of the podcast last week. We launched it into the Top 100 Education Podcast, which is no small feat, so I am so grateful for your support. If you haven't yet, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and sharing this with someone you know to help us grow the HodgePodge of listeners. Also, a quick note that every episode of Educator Happy Hour is transcribed for our deaf or hearing impaired colleagues or anyone who likes a different way to access. So check that out if you would benefit. All right, let's get mathy. This topic is so interesting to me on a personal level because I used to love math. It was one of the few subjects that just made sense to me. But then enter 10th grade, the moment math and I drifted apart. My geometry teacher, who was an amazing teacher in human beings, suffered some health problems and it kept him out of the class for months at a time. Between the revolving door of substitutes and the stepping beyond my algebraic comfort zone, it was a bad mixture. And so for the first time in my life, I felt terrible at math. And that shift in my identity has stayed with me long term. Now, to be clear, I'm not going down the woe is I path of victim of bad teaching. I'm totally going to own my part, not having more perseverance, even as an adult, to improve my math skills. But I remember moments as a teacher after school or during a homeroom period when students would ask me if I could help with their math homework. And I cringe recalling the times when because of my insecurity with math, I would say things like, oh, I'm not that good at math or there's a reason I teach English. 
And there was a huge irony in those responses. For example, I would hear my students say things like, I don't like reading, and then hop right on their phones after class to send text messages. I would challenge them on the idea that they might struggle with certain reading, but they can't say they don't like any reading. I would challenge them to refocus their literacy identity while I did the opposite with my math identity. Hip-o-crit. Whether we're talking about math or any subject in school, identity is central to our experience, our development, and our potential. So though we're talking about math specifically today, we're talking about something far deeper. And thankfully, my guest today is an expert not only on math education, but identity formation. Liesl McConchie has spent over 20 years doing what she loves most, teaching. She has taught multiple grade levels from kindergarten to high school and has an enduring passion for working with teachers. Liesl is the co-author of the best-selling book, Brain-Based Learning, with Dr. Eric Jensen. Liesl bridges her knowledge of how the brain best learns with her experience of teaching to create tangible strategies to support teachers and schools across the globe. She has a rich background in education that includes creating new schools, leading whole school reforms, delivering workshops for educators, and speaking at conferences. And I'll add that she is one of the friggin' smartest, most hilarious, most humble human beings I have ever met. All right, Lisa, welcome to the Educator Happy Hour podcast. We are geeked to have you share your geek with the rest of us. I, I got my geek. Awesome. First question, if you're having a rough day or, or even just like an overwhelming day, stressful day, what is your drink or decompressor of choice? Oh, man, this, this is totally going to out me here. So my, my drink, my go-to drink, this is so, it's so unhealthy. So, so unhealthy. <laughs> um, so I'm not an alcohol girl, but my drink of choice is I, and, and I don't, I promise I do not eat fast food, but I go to Jack in the Box and which is a fast food chain. Well, I think it's like mostly on the West Coast. Um, and I get a chocolate shake. No whipped cream oh, with the cherry. That is, I mean, you're, you're going for it. You are yeah. committing to like really decompressing. I Please, love that. 800 calories of decompressing. <laughs> They're so bad. They're so bad for you. And like, we're not going to talk about the research on sugar and all of this other stuff and how bad it is for your body and for your brain. I know that. But it is still, if I'm having a bad day, you better believe it. If my husband knows I'm having a bad day, you better believe it. He, and I promise like, this is not like an every day, every week, but like when I'm, when something's really going on, I really need to decompress. And, um, if my husband really wants to score some points, he will show up oh. with a chocolate shake from Jack in the Box. Nice. Now what makes the Jack in the Box shake oh. so superior? Cause I know like McDonald's milkshakes are always oh. out of order. Like they don't even have ice cream functioning, but like what, ma what makes Jack in the Box the, the one to go to? This is the important distinction. So <laughs> Jack in the Box was one of the first fast food chains that, that transitioned to using real ice cream. It's not some like icy, nasty, slushy, trashy, chemically something, something. I mean, this doesn't make it healthy by any means. But it's actually made with like real ice cream. There's a few other places who have, you know, since adopted that. But, you know, yeah. this is where it, it was. I first discovered it and I was like, oh, my goodness. This is so I'm a total chocolate yeah. shake snob. Okay. Um, and do not promote high consumption of sugar products. Yeah. 
Well, I like I, I'm gonna have to find it because I live in Michigan. I don't know if there are many Jack in the Box restaurants around here, so I might have to do a, a deep on my travels search yeah. for one. And I'm gonna have one, and I'm gonna send you a picture so yes, you know you that I, that I am going to that level. Awesome. And you will tell me how amazing it is, or we will stop being friends. <laughs> That'll be the yeah, end. Let's just make this really clear right now. Okay. <laughs> this this is a really important. This is big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I am geeked to talk with you about the formation of math identity, like su- such a really important topic of not just math classrooms, but I think society in general. And so I want to lead off with, if we're talking about math and we're talking about identity, why the heck does X need me to figure out its identity? Like, why can't it solve its own equations, figure yourself out? And I know a ton of listeners are like, did that guy just drop a dad joke? That is terrible. Um, no, I would really like to start with like, why should people care about math identity? Or even like, what do we mean when we talk about identities? The way I think about math identity, it's it's all about a person's relationship with math. Mm. And so how do you how do you see yourself and identify yourself within a mathematical space? Do you see yourself as being a math person, not a math person, um, like high math anxiety, uh, you know, it's like mm. all the things that come within how you see yourself in a math space. And because it's a relationship, Mm. it is my relationship with math and relationships are complex and relationships are messy and they take a lot of work in case anyone hasn't figured that out yet. (laughs) Right. I mean, Chase, I mean, I, I was, I was actually thinking about this when, if we can get personal for a minute, since we're chatting here over our drinks. Um, Like I remember when, like talking to you about the messiness of relationships yeah. and the complexities of relationships, like a hundred years right. ago when you and I were working at like a summer program at, at Wake Forest yeah. University. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I remember you like sitting me down and I was in relationship distress and you shared some like really helpful wisdom with me. And this literally was like a hundred years I ago. I maybe don't remember this. I, I remember talking about relationships, but I don't remember having any insight that someone could. <laughs> no, I, I have a super clear memory of like, I can see us sitting there next to each other. I'm distressed. You're like speaking, like dropping wisdom, truth bombs mm. like you do. And... And then like 20 years later, here I am, like married to the man that I was in emotional distress about, you know, and you were like, look, relationships take work. If you like, if it's, if it's what you want, go for it, go fight for it. And I was like, darn right. Yeah. I'm going to go fight for it. So, so thank you, Chase. I am so glad to know that that actually happened. Uh, I have no recollection. I made, again, like I remember those moments and I remember when, when you were, you know, in that mode of like, oh, I, I don't know whether to pursue this or not with your now husband. So, hey, I'm going to take that. Now, like thinking about yeah. shifting back to like the, the math idea of this yeah. now, I know a lot of math teachers think a lot about math identity, but I am hoping that like listeners right now are, even if they're not math teachers, like why should they care about the development of someone's math identity? In order for us, for us to like be successful in this mathematical experience, we just have to recognize and honor and nurture this identity, this relationship mm. that we have with math. It's the same in any subject, right? You want mm. someone to have a, a, a positive relationship with reading. So that's why we talk about high interest reading materials right. and letting students read graphic novels and, and the joy of reading and not doing reading logs yeah. because it's, it's like, 
you got to like think about a regular relationship with a person, human to human. Yeah. You don't have like a relationship log with your with your wife or your husband or your partner. Mm-hmm. You don't do mm-hmm. that. Like this is like it's it's joyful and it's enjoyable and it's enjoyable and you want that. Same thing with writing. We let students write on topics that are interesting to mm-hmm. them. These personal narratives and issues that they care about, that they're passionate about, because we want them to have this positive relationship with it. Yeah. The same is true with math. It's just a little bit more complex, I think, or a little bit trickier. I think so. I, before we started recording, as I was putting together my notes, I found myself wanting to drift so often to these disclaimers of like, now I'm just an English teacher, so I don't know anything about math. And like, I go back to where I developed that idea of like, I used to love math. I used to really love the experience of problems and trying to put pieces together. But um, I shared earlier in the in the podcast recording of some of the moments that led to me not feeling as comfortable or confident about math. And I do think a lot about that relationship analogy of like, you know, I had a couple bad breakups. And then from that <laughs> point forward, I felt insecure with my relationship with math. And now fast forward, I have kids you know, I get a chance to, to work with teachers and students all the time. And more and more of those moments are creeping up of like, oh, I have baggage when it comes to my math experience that still affect me as a grown adult. So I'm hoping yeah. that you can kind of lend some insight of like, how, how does this identity form? What are, what are the major moments that it forms? And how can that help us inform both for personally changing our relationship with math, but also for the students or the people we work with. Exactly. I mean, I, I think of math identity having four different aspects. So I think of it in like a horizontal continuum or spectrum. Mm. And on one side, you have your past experiences with math. And this is what you're talking about, mm. your baggage. Yeah. Every student walks into our classrooms with baggage. Mm. We walk into our relationships with human beings with baggage. <laughs> We spend thousands of dollars on, with our therapist to try to <laughs> unpackage, understand, and repackage the baggage we bring from other relationships into our current relationship, mm. yeah. right? It's the same thing with math, just as it is in relationships with people. We all have our own past math experiences, and they're all unique. But if we don't take time to look back, to examine those stories, to unpack that baggage, and as a teacher, to listen and to find ways to just discover when those, like you said, when those breakups happened, where were those big turning points? Like one of the activities, the lessons that I was crafting just this week is I'm I'm designing a bunch of activities for teachers Mm. to help develop a a positive math identity with students. And one of them is to do kind of what you were talking about, Chase, is to look back and to kind of graph your relationship with math. Interesting. So when you look back to kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, and if you were literally to make a graph of it, like when were you like on a really high level of the spectrum, like really, this is fun. This is joyful. I enjoy this. And when those breakup moments happen, those turning Mm. points where you're like, boom, and you just plummeted your emotional relationship with math, just free fall. When did those happen? And then for students to explore, why did it happen then? What was going on? What shifted? Yeah. I mean, it's literally the same stuff that you would do with your therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And then being able to identify that and then just share that with your teacher. Yeah. Knowing that there's like a really strong relationship there of trust built. And for students to see that like, wow, I've had periods of time or, or moments when 
things were, I had a really positive relationship. And then when mm-hmm. I didn't, mm-hmm. and what I think is really powerful about that with my background in cognitive neuroscience mm-hmm. is that that exercise alone proves to students the power of neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. which is the fact that our brains are always changing right. and our experiences, and our relationships change us all the time. And so the story going forward isn't written right? and it doesn't have to be a plateau at whatever level they're at right now in terms of their relationship with Matt, mm. but it's going to continue to, to oscillate and to change. And that there are things that they can do to, um, that, that to help them feel empowered. Yeah. Like you can do things to change what it looks like going forward. And that's what we're going to yeah. do. I think it's, it's powerful to think about the demonstrating to students that, change happens over time because i think math more than some of the other subjects that we teach gets like very connected to the idea of iq that like you either have it or you don't you are either like a prodigy who like you know beautiful mind numbers just are like making themselves appear right in front of you or like you have no business being there um so that idea of like helping people look back on on their relationship and how that has fluctuated and ebbed and flowed could be really, really powerful for students to examine. I'm curious to know, I'm aware of negativity bias, that the unpleasant memories tend to stick out in our our development of identity more. Do you, or how would you approach that idea of like, I remember my breakups with math. I remember the bad (laughs) moments. I don't remember a whole lot of the good. So are students going to be a little bit more biased as they reflect back on this and think like, oh, no, I have all these bad moments? Or how could a teacher help them also see the power of the positive moments they may have had? That's true. We do have a a high negativity bias. Part of that can come with just modeling from the teacher. Like Mm. I've I've seen this activity done with teachers, like math teachers, Mm. people like me who love, breathe, eat, drink, math. And even us, we have huge variety. Mm. It's not that like, whoop out of the womb and then we're off. <laughs> high on this plateau with math forever and for eternity. No, we, we've all had our own journeys. And so I think um, in me modeling, as all good teachers do, rather yeah. than model first, here's my math story. Um, here is where some of my highs are and being really specific and explicit around what were things that gave me that those high levels in my math story can maybe like trigger mm-hmm. some of those other memories. I mean, I don't know. This is, this is good to be talking it out. Um, that's my first yeah. thought. Yeah. I think that that is a big piece of kind of, kind of normalizing. Cause again, that gap between the perception of you either have math or you don't, you have the IQ or not. I think a lot of times math teachers get perceived as like, Oh, math was easy for them. They know all the answers and that can be hugely influential for a teacher to be able to say like, no, we did not always, I did not always have great relationships with math. Like we went through some turbulent times and, and again, just like you would with a therapist, that affirmation that that's normal and it's a part of the process, I think can, can really help people just shift how their identity feels with math. Um, so looking back in the past is a big part of that. Yep. Do we look towards the future next? Like uh, what's, what's the next move? We, we yeah. do. Yeah. And, and it can happen simultaneously. Mm. It doesn't have to be like one or the other, but sometimes we look past back, look back to the past first and then we look forward to the future. And that is all about being able to see myself as a math learner being successful in a math space. Mm. And the, the best and only way to do that is to really foster a sense of belonging. Mm. Math is a, geez, the data is really depressing. It's just really depressing in terms of who 
traditionally is excluded from mm. math success mm-hmm. in, in a school um, type of setting and, and thus beyond mm. because that's where it starts and where we do stuff with their identity. Yeah. We either like build it or squash it. And so it's it's all of the the students who you are typically marginalized mm. who don't feel like they belong in math spaces and then it shows up in the data in terms of math achievement. Mm. And so creating a vision of being uh, having a strong math identity is all about being able to see and recognize and be exposed and introduced to people whose culture matches mine mm. who are killing it Mm. like they're doing it in the math space yeah Yeah. and so that's another project i'm working on they're called like belonging bios Mm. where it's just every day we're just going to be introduced to here is you know a a latinx like mathematician they are doing this right now in this part of the country this is their quote of what they say about what it means to be good at math like look you know, and then and here's someone else who, you know, this is uh, a mathematician who's in the LGBTQ community. And here's another mathematician who is in the African-American community. And and just making sure that all of every single student, because mm. what happens, Chase, oh my gosh, I get so fired up. I love it. <laughs> you go to Google and you type in the Google search. It's like mathematician, mm. uh, you know, math genius, someone who's good at math. And you look at those images yeah. and you like chase right now, give it like, what, That's what do you think you're going to see? Like, what do you like? Just like what comes in your own mind? I, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to do it right picture? now. Like as we're talking right now, but I, I'm picturing like the white dude with, you yeah. know, the very, very Einstein esque with the frizzy hair, older uh-huh. lab coat, chalk. Yeah, no, that's literally like <laughs> the first image. Hey, there mama, he is. Why, I, dude, I typed in math, <laughs> mathematician, and you it could not stereotype more of first four images: white dudes holding chalkboard with beards and glasses. Oh man, that's that's fascinating, and this this makes so much sense. I do a lot of focusing on efficacy and how efficacy gets built in all different levels, which I I know is very mm-hmm. closely tied to identity. And when we talk about social modeling is one of the major underpinnings of efficacy. The more a person identifies with who's doing the modeling, the more it works. So like that mm-hmm. makes sense to try to bridge that gap between helping students realize that like individuals like you, your culture, your background, your experiences are succeeding and utilizing math more than you even realize. Yeah. So there's work to do, right? not only just in our Google image searches, but just in <laughs> how society portrays it. Like it's, you know, pop yeah. culture and the media you know, it's all of our advertisements that like trash math and, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. But so those are the two spectrums mm. in terms on, on the, the horizontal axis is the way I look at it, that identity formation is bi-directional in terms of time. It's the past mm. and the future. Can I see people who look like me who have a future of being successful in math? Mm. And there's so many things that can be done in our classroom to help support students in both of those directions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I'm in the process of building right now. And I'm really excited to share with um, teachers um, as soon as I'm, as soon as I'm done I love it. building and creating <laughs> and designing. I love it. All the time I, I hear the frustration of like students or I hear it from teachers who are venting about students who are like, when am I ever going to need to learn this? So mm-hmm. how does that come into play? Like how, how can teachers help students realize that, no matter what path they might go into or what, what field interests them, that trying to take on mathematical concepts and understand them and tackling hard problems and, and getting their hands dirty in math 
is of benefit to their future. Welcome to one of the biggest debates in the math sphere right ooh, now. Is it gonna get is it gonna get juicy <laughs> here? You just touch the hot button, Jace. There's a few different trains of thought mm. that are out there. Some people are like, it's not the actual math that matters. Mm. It's them, you know, developing their critical thinking skills and problem solving mm. and and yada yada yada. And there's there's truth in that. Like that's good. And you can do that with a lot of yeah. things. But we use that as an excuse for having really, in my opinion, mm. we use that as an excuse. If it's just you and me, it's just you and me right here, right now, right? Like we're just at a coffee shop yeah. chatting. No one else. We don't have like thousands of people. Right. No, not at all. Right? So just you and me, Chase. Like we use that as an excuse in math ed mm. to allow for really bad math standards mm. at the secondary level. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I've taught math yeah. kindergarten through 12th yeah. grade and beyond, but most of my career was spent in like middle school and high school. And most of the stuff that we teach students in middle school and high school math is irrelevant. Mm. And it's like, when am I ever going to use this? I don't know. Mm. And if we can't answer that question, then my question is, then why the heck are we teaching Mm. it? Especially since students are leaving eighth grade and only 33% of those students are proficient in in, Mm. in math up through eighth grade. Right, right. We're just like blazing through K through eight math, which is the actual important relevant stuff you're going to use in life. And then we throw them into high school with all this, a lot of it is irrelevant. I would say there's, you know, there's a good, there's a, there's a good chunk that is relevant, but so that, like, this is the big debate yeah. of like, do we like trash the, the high school math standards and redesign it? I would really love to just kind of spread things out yeah. um, and just take more time to really dive into like the K-8 math standards more. Yeah. Because I mean, you and I both know, like when a student, when a student says like, when am I ever going to use this? I used to be super annoyed by that student. <laughs> like, zip it, kid. Like, I'm just, I'm like, I don't know. But, but I've come to realize, you know, like after two decades of studying the brain and how it learns, yeah. I'm now realizing that kid might be the smartest kid in this room. Right, yeah. Because that kid knows that relevance is a high driver yeah. for motivation and for learning. Yeah. And so they're just grasping for something to hang on to, to help them find some intrinsic motivation to stick with this. And it's not often there. In that I could see why this is like a hot topic, because this is looking at very much dismantling and reshaping education as we have known okay. it over the, the past, you know, decades, centuries. People are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Well, this, I think, is where we can start to look now at the difference or the factors of how does math identity get influenced by the individual on the individual level? And where does like the society or the systems and structures come into play? So like... Where would you go with that topic? What, where should we be focusing our energy? Individual level, systems, all the above. Hit, hit me with your insights oh. here. Well, Chase, you and I are going to agree on this because you have you you know this sphere in you know not in the math world, mm-hmm. but it's the same thing, right? So let's review the horizontal axis. We got like look to the past, look to the future. Yeah. Then I, I like envision it as this vertical axis, and down at the bottom you have all the systemic forces. And up at the top, you have all the personal individual mm. choices around my math identity. Mm. Now, Chase, you and I, we we worked together decades ago. We started in the same yeah. world. And that was a world that was really rich and deep in personal stuff. Yeah. I don't even know what to call it, right? It's like, you just do it all on your own and, and like pull up those bootstraps. And, you know, it's taken... Uh, 
it's taken me quite a while to untangle the privilege right. that is saturating that mindset yeah. around personal change. You and I both have come to the realization that there is a lot that we can do at an individual level mm-hmm. to change ourselves and to change, you know, you talk a lot about well-being yeah. and, you know, and and burnout and and teachers, you know, fulfillment within this career. And we could have the same conversation within my math identity that there's a lot of personal things that I can do. I can, and I am, I'm still doing it. Like I'm writing lessons Mm -hmm. on how to guide your students to create math affirmations Mm -hmm. because they work. Right. Affirmations work, self-talk work, and we can work through that. You know, math anxiety is a real thing. And some people struggle with that personally. And so, you know, this morning I was working on another lesson of talking about these little gremlins, these little math gremlins (laughs) that sometimes in our shoulder and they like try to whisper this junk trash into our ears of like, oh, you're slow. Mm. You're not good at this math. Right. You know, like, oh, well, you thought about that differently than everyone else in the Mm. class. You approach that problem totally differently. Mm. Doesn't matter that you got the same answer. You like your brain's whacked. Mm. Right. Like just these gremlins are just like pestery little punks and so like what can we do to like flick those little pieces of junk off of our shoulder like get like you know like this is this is anxiety work and how do we and you and i both know that that comes from like rooted in the amygdala and how we can calm that down and and flood our brain with more productive positive things so you like we have we have strong roots in this personal world but you and I, you and I have both come to the realization that ah shoot, there are all these systemic factors right. Right. that are at play that are often invisible to many people that are creating a really shaky foundation. Yes. It's like an earthquake is constantly going on yes. while we're there uh, up on the ground <laughs> trying to be like hey. Flowers and roses and rainbows and unicorns. Here's my math affirmation. I am a math person. I think critically and I can solve problems, you know, but like, you know, there's like a 9.2 underneath ground. That's just like rocking your world. Yeah. Literally. I think that like, it's such a tricky balance. I have found on that evolution because I very much was, you know, very Americanized, like you got to just pull, pull mindset. It's all you, like you, you own your destiny, master of your, all that, blah, blah, blah. And now that I'm like actually realizing there's so much more to it than that, there's this tricky balance between I want people to know that they do have influence over their lives because that's really important. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, affirming that some systemic things are coming into play. And I always try to like walk that line of how do I empower people, but also affirm them that the system has created conditions that don't allow everyone equally to have the same access to any number of things, identity, wealth, privilege, etc. So if a listener right now is like, well, I am a teacher, what do I do? Like, how do I affect the system? Or how do I spend my time between impacting the system versus on the individual level? Like, what are we to do on the individual level to help the systems? It's a both and, right? And I think that's what we've come to realize in our own individual work is that you can both have influence and both can change and both need to change. Mm. And in one moment, maybe I'm in front of my class and I'm leading them 
through an exercise that can help them personally, but at the same time, or, you know, maybe that afternoon I'm in my PLC meeting and we are going through an exercise ourselves to work on one of the systemic issues. Mm -hmm. No, it's not an either or, and it's just a, like you said, it's a constant dance of, am I, am I kind of, you know, given too much effort on one? Am I putting too much of the responsibility on my students right now? Do I need to step back? and really focus on some of these systemic issues. Yeah. Because some of the systemic issues on the topic of math identity are the anxiety around math mm. that the adults have around mm. the student. Yeah. So there's so much robust research that says parents' math anxiety and teachers' math anxiety is contagious. Yes. So contagious that students pick up on it. Yeah. That's not the student's fault. Right. Like we can't like blame the student and, and like hold them responsible for the fact that their teacher, like their teachers pass baggage or their parents pass baggage and, and all these things. So the adults have work to do to really deal with our own anxiety around math. And then there is like teachers implicit bias. Mm-hmm. If I am a teacher and I harbor an implicit bias that I am conscious or unconscious of that certain students or this one student for whatever reason is not good at math Mm. because of a conversation I overheard in the teacher's lounge last year about this one student, right? right? right. Or because these groups of students, oh, well, you know, it's just really tough for students who don't speak English with this first language. You know, math is a language and English, and then it's just, it's just like, they just, they don't, you know, they just don't do as yeah. well. If I have that belief, which is BS, yeah. then that is felt by students very strongly. Mm. And that is going to impact their math identity. We cannot lie to ourselves and say we can hide that. Well, it's interesting to think that if I'm a teacher, I am a part of the system. And by doing inward work of uh, looking at my identity and how my interactions with math have impacted me and others, that it's almost like I am investing in my own ideas and in who I am, but mm. that is rippling out to my students because since I'm a part of the system, I'm, I'm impacting the system, which, yeah. which is really fascinating to think about that. Like we yeah. as educators can create a new outcome of the system just being real with ourselves and really constantly inward work and discussions and having those difficult conversations around how we approach math, how we talk about math, how we talk about students, that can be so powerful now and in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even just like, oh man, Whew. that third period class, you know, <laughs> or man, I've taught remedial math for four years in a row. Mm. Like why, like, what do you have against me? Like, when are you going to give me the honors <laughs> right. kids? Right. I want the easy kids. Give me the good kids. Oh my god! Right, like all yeah. this, you know, like we have like a tracking in math. Yeah, yeah. And what that does to a student's math identity. Uh. Like, oh, I'm in remedial math. Oh yeah, because no matter what we call it, no matter what like name or label. I remember in college, I took a class called Excursions in Mathematics, and I feel like if you're if the title of your class has something about a journey or some destination, like you're going to know what level of, of experience you're about to have there. So yeah, no, they pick up on it so quick. They, the kids know that they identify and they right. have no problem talking about it. 
Um, and that language, I'm sure, affects their identity. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, this isn't exclusive to math. This right. happens with reading levels, you know. It doesn't matter. Like, oh, bear group and the unicorns. Uh, no. Yeah. The unicorns, no. <laughs> that. Well, I have one final question before we get into our, our section called statements. Let's say you have like a 30-second conversation with someone who utters the phrase, I'm just not a math person. What would that 30-second conversation sound like? I mean, I'd probably start with like validating or empathy, you know, like, I'm so sorry you feel that way. It sounds like you had some really rough math experiences. That's not true. Mm. Everyone can do math. And it'd probably just be like an invitation. Like, I'd love to, mm. I'd love to work with you to help you explore all the bad things that experience that happened to you that created that big fat lie that you have held on to and believe because someone lied to you mm. or the school system lied to you. Like you've been fooled. Mm. Mm. That's like some, uh, some true getting into the therapy work there. The affirmation, <laughs> the reflection on the past experience, and the invitation to work together moving forward. I love that because I, 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 so many people have experienced that. Parents, I've heard parents say it. I, I know that I have said it, and I cringe admitting that like I've had those moments before. Um, love, love that response. Okay, let's get into our section called statements. I'm going to give you a statement, and you have four potential answers. You can say you strongly disagree, disagree, okay. agree, or strongly agree with a statement. Some of these are going to have to do with like education. Some of them are not. We're going to start with one that has nothing to do with education to get us warmed up. So here's your statement. Square sandwiches should be sliced diagonally. Agree. It's, I, I feel like that's, that's a superior way to eat a sandwich. I don't know why. But I feel like that little part of like the crust sandwich combination, like that, that's key. You have to have a nice balance yes. of crust to non-crust bread. Okay. Whew. I'm glad I'm glad we can still be friends <laughs> over that one. Really. <laughs> All right. Next statement. Teachers are most responsible for a student's math identity. Oh shoot. Most responsible? I'm gonna say disagree. Tell us more. <laughs> well, just be, it's kind of like it's half and half because when you look at those four points that we talked about, two of them are highly teacher dependent, mm. right? Like the, the past experiences, a lot of them came from past teachers. Mm. And when you look, like we talked about with the system, that a lot of that comes from what we bring into a math space. Right? You know, like if I am a math teacher and I believe that being good at math means you're fast and you get right answers right away and you follow the algorithm that I taught you, then that mm -hmm. is going to exclude a lot of students who are really good at math, but do it differently right. and take the time and actually think about what they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So shoot, maybe I would say, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to put the blame on students or on teachers, sorry, but they do. I want teachers to feel empowered yeah to know that they do have strong influence yeah yeah i think it's it's that balance again of like the, the individual yeah. versus the system of like we want people to feel like they they have a major influence in their world and the lives of others that makes sense uh next statement the most important thing when it comes to math ability is iq boo strongly disagree okay. elaborate tell us more no trash no, those are not related hmm. at all. 
you know, so math ability is, it's just so much, much more than IQ. Like we said, it is about, you know, discovery and, and curiosity and exploring patterns and the beauty of mathematics. And then using those discoveries, in my opinion, using that for social change, for bettering the world, and to being able to look critically at data and be like, oh, well, that's jacked up. Mm we need to fix this thing called gerrymandering, mm. you know, because the mathematics of this is showing us that this is extremely inequitable and very unfair. Mm. And so we can use math for that. And that's not, mm. that's not IQ. Mm. That's not like being able to, you know, memorize pi to 3,729 <laughs> digits or something. You know? Right. Love it. Okay. This will be our, our last statement. Right. Schools should teach growth mindset. I like I like that you're like you're having that same experience that I've had because again I'm speaking for myself you know I had to have that evolution of experience of like being all about growth mindset and then really having to think about things a little differently but nevertheless I want I want to hear your answer I could be wrong but my assumption about the image that comes to mind for most people when they say teaching growth mindset mm. is a poster that's de- that's has two columns. Instead of thinking this, say this. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know that that redirect. Yeah. And if that's what you mean by growth mindset, then no. Yeah. Like that's not going to do anything. That's not going to move the needle. You know, Carol Dweck's research on growth mindset is rooted in neuroplasticity. Yeah. That's what it yeah. is. A growth mindset is that. I can change. My brain can change. My experiences can change me and how I think and how I feel and how I show up and behave and perform. And so do I think we should teach neuroplasticity? Yes. We talked mm. about this, even with like graphing your math journey. Like that's the whole point is to see that it's it's constantly changing based on all these different factors. Right. And I believe that neuroplasticity is the most hopeful message mm that comes out of my field of study yeah. in the last several decades yeah. is that we are constantly changing. And the, the student who is struggling to read right now, I mean, here's what I really think. <laughs> Hit me with it. I want to hear it. Well, I think us as teachers have, we, if we want to serve the education sphere as a whole best, then we should be doing the personal work. Yeah of doing our own mindset growth work Mm. and the way that we perceive and see students equitably. Mm. And, and, and I think there's research to support that, you know, when we believe that all students can learn at high levels, Mm. then those high expectations that we have for all of our students manifest themselves in, in so many great ways. So I think students need hope. So they need to know that nothing's fixed for them mm. in, in the in the context that we're talking about right now. And that there are things that they have ownership over that can change that and, and other things that are going to happen to them yeah. that will change that for, for better or for worse. Well, I think it's really interesting if you just even drop the word mindset schools should teach growth like they should they should teach and they should base their practice off like helping students actually see and demonstrate growth because that's it's been my latest frustration yeah. with the, the the growth mindset buzzword is it's like it, it is a lot of it's a lot of rah rah mantra work 
but then kids don't actually see the evidence of it. So like I can talk all day long about like how your mindset matters, but if a kid consistently feels frustration and failure, it's not happening for them. You know, it's like they're, they're being inflated again with people telling them they can do things, but not actually coaching and supporting and demonstrating that they actually can do the things. And so, uh, yeah, like where's the daily formative assessment yeah. so that every student leaves right. class every day knowing that they gave effort, yeah. learned something, grew in some way, and then it's just, it's natural yeah. instead of, hey, right. here's our growth mindset assembly. Here, <laughs> right. fingers right. for people not watching the video. <laughs> I love it. Well, I I mean, I could, I could geek out with you all day, but uh, we should probably for now draw to a close although I, I feel a whole nother follow-up episode on this neuroplasticity growth mindset debate here yes. um before we leave off how can listeners find you where do they get more lethal in their lives yeah some more lethal in your life be careful what you wish for um you can find me uh, on a few different places i'm on most social media platforms i'm most active on twitter at Liesl McConchie, check Chase's show notes for spelling, I'm sure. And then my website, my website is a great place to find a lot of free resources. I write a lot of mini books that are all free that are designed for teachers who don't have a lot of time but want quick, actionable strategies that are rooted in research. And so you can like find those on my website um, as well as lots of other good things. I, I blog a lot about um, the research on how the brain learns. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book. That one's not free. I wrote a couple books, but one of them's not free um, called Brain-Based Learning with Dr. Eric Jensen. You can find a lot of great stuff in there. Reach out to me. on. You can contact me through my website and we can um, start a conversation about any of this stuff. And we will have links to uh, all of that in the show notes for people to find more. In the meantime, I'm looking forward to you starting your math therapist practice because I feel like... <laughs> That's a new area. But for everyone listening, uh, we're going to bid adieu to Liesl. I'm hoping everyone goes out to Jack in the Box, gets their chocolate shake oh just God. to celebrate. And then go for a really long run afterwards. <laughs> so that's better. That's healthier. I love it. Liesl, thank you so much for your time and for the nerdiness that you share with the rest of us. All right, y'all, last call before we shut this educator happy hour down. Math identity is a common denominator of our experiences as students and teachers. All right, I promise that was my last dad joke today. As we close out our educator happy hour, here's your assignment. First, a personal reflection. Carve out 10 minutes and plot out the history of your relationship with math. Plot the positive good moments and the negative unpleasant moments. And as you plot, think about how this relationship shaped not only your relationship with math, but your relationship with learning, your identity as a student and human. Then think about the implications this may have on your role as an educator. Your second assignment is to do the same process with your class or a student on the topic you teach. Try to create a teachable moment where students can be honest on their feelings with your topic and how they got there. Really affirm their experience, model your history for them, and then talk about how our identity is not concrete. Just as it was formed through past experiences, it can be shaped by new experiences. And show, don't just tell them, show them how your content, your class, will be different in giving them the identity they need to be successful. Oh, and extra credit assignment, head over to lieselmaconchie.com and check out the work she does. She is friggin' 
brilliant. Of course, I'll have links to all that in the show notes to make it easier for you to do that extra credit. As always, thank you all for listening. Thank you for the work you do, and thank you for who you are. Cheers. Special thanks to Liesl for being such a beast of a brain and human. Thanks to everyone who has listened, reviewed, and shared this podcast during our launch week. Y'all really are a great hodgepodge of people. Lastly, thanks to our sponsor, Top Youth Speakers, the source for inspiring and impactful speakers and professional development leaders who can help take your students, your staff, and your organization to the next level. Browse the carefully vetted speakers, check out customer reviews, watch preview videos at topyouthspeakers.com.